Touch them all, Joe! Sidney Crosby! The golden goal! Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. In this episode, we have a candid conversation with Eva Havaris, who was a standout college soccer player and coach turned sports executive. I hope you can stay with us for the full 40 minutes to hear all the leadership advice shared by Eva. Eva, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing really well, Mark. Good to see you again. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know it. Uh, we went back and forth a little bit with timing, but I'm so happy that, that we're doing this today. So to start off with... Um, Soccer has given you so much. You know, you were a star player and a coach in the Canadian collegiate system, or I'm not sure what to call it these days. It's U Sports, <laughs> but it wasn't U Sports when you were playing. We'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. How did you discover that that love of soccer, and and where did you get that drive to develop your skills and to compete and to succeed at really the highest levels of Canadian women's soccer? Well, I'm I'm one of four kids, and I have an older brother and. Uh, Way back in the day, my mom tells me that my older brother was registered in soccer and she would take me to the games and I'd be on the sideline. And at that time, uh, really, there was just programs for boys. So, you know, in the early, early days, she just said uh, I demanded to play and and to be part of it. And so she walked me over to the coach. And and back at that time, the programming was structured based on uh, ethnicity, ethnic background. So this was the, the Greek club, the Greek community club. And so she walked me over to the coach, who happened to be Greek, of course, and said, hey, my daughter wants to play. And of course, he laughed, no chance, you know, girls don't play soccer, da, da, da. And my mom insisted, no, she wants to play. And, uh, you know, apparently I stepped on the field and it was just this natural thing. Uh, and I can recall from the earliest days of playing that, it's something that definitely came natural naturally to me. Um, not only the the skill of it, reading the game, you know, moving on the field, understanding sort of all of the flow around me, but also the leadership side of it. So I ended up leading pretty much every team I played for. I played with the boys competitively in London until I was 14 years old. Um, was their captain and uh, was fully embraced in that role by them. And so it's been something ever since that. You know, I've played multiple sports in, in high school, um, had to make a choice when I went to university, which I first went down to the States and, of course, chose soccer, which was my passion, my love and, and my best sport. Um, so, yeah, you know, I always knew that uh, I would end up playing at the varsity level. I always knew I would end up coaching from early days, uh, you know, I'd say as early as 16 years old. I was always looked at. Uh, as my teammates, as sort of a leader, whether that was as their captain or even just looking for advice as to positional play, technical advice, um, you name it. So it's just something that's been there my whole life. Uh, it's super nice. And it's great to have that love affair with a sport and be able to follow it through. For for the sake of the, of the audience who might not be as familiar with kind of what was the opportunities that were available for star soccer players from Canada back uh, just after Y2K, you know, was the NWSL something that, that you were thinking of in, in terms of where you could go in time? Was there any real opportunity at that time? Take us back to what the environment was like. We're not going to touch on kind of the, the national team yeah. at this point. We're going to deal with that a little sure. later in our chat. Yeah, no, um, 
my reason for I had I had quite a few offers uh, when I was ready to go to university, both Canadian and on the U.S. side. At that time, the Canadian scholarships were almost non-existent, so U Sport was well behind uh, the U.S. and certainly that sort of stronghold that NCAA had on you know the best Canadian athletes um, was still there, very present sort of when I was growing up. So there was a couple reasons for my choice to go to the states. Uh, one was um, certainly the full scholarship Two, definitely at the time, a much better system, much more competitive system. Um, and three, to be honest, I was um, looking into a career with the FBI. And of course, the FBI is in the States. And so this was part of sort of my plan of, of going to the States and staying there and, and ultimately working in that system. Wow, that is a very different world. And uh, I, I'm... We haven't talked about this on on the podcast, but I, I love the the CIA, the FBI shows, all of those. Um, I'm I'm such a sucker for. Yeah. I don't know if you were at that time or not, but uh, absolutely, I'm a closet wanna wanna be secret agent kind of person. Anyway, I, I digress. Yeah. So you came you came back to Canada. You got your undergrad, star athlete. Then you went on and did your master's in sport management, and then following that, you quickly found your way into a a national sport organization here in Canada. At that point, from what I've, what I've researched, you were still on the performance side, but not too, too far after that, you actually uh, took on your first of two CEO roles uh, for a national sport organization. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to get into, you know, what is it like going from being you know, an athlete to a coach, to an administrator, all in a really short amount of time and still at a relatively young age? Yeah. Um, well, I'll tie this back to the previous question of the NWSL. You know, I had my coaches at the time in the States had said to me, listen, this professional women's soccer league is coming. You need to stay. You absolutely will be part of this. We'll be recruited in it, into it and everything else. And I, I lost faith because I didn't see it coming that quickly. Um, even though everyone said, you know, five years, give it five years. And I just, I didn't see it happening. And so it is why part of the reason why I came back to Canada. Um, yeah, going from, you know, playing to coaching. So, of course, I finished my fifth year at Western. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I was a pretty big presence in that program. The coaching staff knew that. The players knew that. We were a dominant team in the country for, you know, at least three, four years while I was there, um, but never actually achieving our full potential. And so I realized pretty quickly that one way that I could actually help that along was to join the coaching staff and so I did and had a, a pretty big role and presence at that time on the coaching staff um, from there the head coaching position opened up at Western um, I applied for it I was of course young at that time as well but certainly well respected um, the administration did not select me for that but the Fanshawe position head coaching position also op opened up in London Ontario and I got recruited over by that athletic, athletic director for that position. And I can tell you the two athletic directors at the time, the one at Fanshawe and the one at Western were very different, both males, but very different, had a very different view of the role of women in leadership positions in sport. Um, I can say it unequivocally now, you know, looking back on it, uh, one was very, you know, um, not only pro-women, but just, set that aside and looked at performance, achievements, leadership skills, coaching potential, coaching ability, impact for female players at that, in that age group. 
um, and said, absolutely, we want you. And on the other side, it was, you don't have enough experience. Uh, we need to go with someone who is, you know, uh, Anglo-Saxon, has an accent, has been coaching for a long time, um, but not in the university system, you know, in the provincial system, but had no university background. Uh, so we went with it. It was basically a swap, um, the Fanshawe program. So taking that over, I had an all-female coaching staff. We uh, won provincials for the first time in 10 years with a rookie team. We built it from scratch. We had no um, no vets. I think we had one left over from what was left of the program when I inherited it. And Western, uh, for several years after, had really gone down as a program and is still in a process of trying to rebuild to back where the days where we were. So did that, finished my graduate degree at Western, um, focused on accountability and sport, funding and sport, looking at the national sport organization system and trying to understand, uh, of course, there's numerous policies that Sport Canada puts out, says we want to achieve this by a certain date, um, never usually happens. Uh, and in particular, of course, uh, the women in sport policy, which has been around since the early 80s, um, same thing, just really struggling to get some real wins, some real breakthrough in the industry. Um, so rather than looking just in that area, I expanded it to, you know, how for, how uh, national organizations are funded, what new programs were coming, emerging. So at the time, On the Podium didn't exist, but it was emerging. Um, funding for the long-term athlete development, this whole uh, initiative was emerging, but hadn't made it yet into the sport system. And so I uh, was able to grab that knowledge and that understanding through my thesis, which then positioned me really well for uh, making a quick transition from being a graduate student right into a management position with an NSO, which was Rugby Canada. Yeah, very different, a very different sport. Um, we, we certainly saw from the, um, the, the Olympics in, uh, in Rio, uh, the, the women's game uh, it was quite exciting. Uh, it, was, it was good to see that. It was just every bit as tough as the men's. But before we go in specifically to, to rugby and then to the other NSOs, you weren't you weren't just working for for Rugby Canada. You were also coaching, and you were coaching at a, at a different university. Yeah. And and I'm sure you were going up against Western uh, during that time as well. So uh, t tell us how how that went. <laughs> yeah. So I moved to Toronto for the job with rugby, and I had met the head coach of the University of Toronto during the FISU games. So I was an athlete on that team. Uh, where we went to Turkey, um, and she was an assistant coach. She was an assistant coach with FISU. She was the head coach of U of T. And so we started talking there about, you know, what was my next step? Um, you know, was I interested in helping her at U of T? So I was, yes. Uh, that all happened, went to U of T. Very young program, certainly didn't have the alumni base, the culture, you know, many of the things that Western had, you know, very established uh, women's soccer program and very reputable. So this was, you know, coming into U of T, which for me, I mean, it's Toronto. It's it's a mega city. It's a mega university. Um, there was no excuse, in my opinion, for that program not being able to attract top talent, both academically, athletically, and really putting that women's program on the map in the country. Um, so I saw it as an opportunity to come and help do that. And and ended up taking over that program shortly after. I think I was an assistant for about a year and a half uh, before moving into the head coach position. So I was doing that. And you had some success there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we finished fifth in the country. We, so we hosted nationals. We had the best record, I think, 
the programs ever had in at least the whatever the divisions they they ended up dividing them east west so on the east division which is known to be the tougher one best program ever finished atop the rankings um same thing just recruited differently different profile of player uh and really focused you know all female coaching staff and focused on what made us unique both as coaches as a program um and then we looked for players that that would match the culture we were trying to build you know they may not have been the most skilled player on the team but they were just these you know tough resilient um humble people and they had options all over the province and in the states to go to school we definitely couldn't compete with them scholarship wise but we could compete on philosophy on coaching staff on culture and on the potential for them to honestly realize their full potential both academically and athletically with us and that made the difference well congratulations that's an amazing accomplishment and it sounds like, and, and for the people who don't know Eva who are listening, which I, I suspect most of you don't know Eva, it sounds like you built a team with, with a lot of Evas on, on the pitch from the way you just described yourself. And when you played Western, um, did you give that fellow the, the evil eye uh, at all when you were beating them? Because you, you must have you must have walked over Western a few times uh, when you were coaching at U of T. Western was in the other division, so we didn't actually cross paths so much. Um but there were other coaches in the division that we had that, you know, same idea. We're young female staff. These are guys that have been coaching in the system for decades. Some of them received us very well. Others, not at all, um, made it sort of this personal mission to take us down and prove a point to us. Um, we came up against referees who wouldn't even, I had a, a male physio on the staff. I mean, we had referees that wouldn't even acknowledge our presence as coaches. They would go right to the uh, male physio and speak to him as if he was the head coach. I mean, we saw it all. We saw it all. And, and to be honest, our athletes saw it too. And they were completely on board with making a statement and shifting that culture. Well, it, it must have been quite, quite a day for not just you, but for, for anyone who's familiar with what people have gone through to have you know, equality and respect. Well, continuing you know, on the theme of soccer, uh, which is, is going to be a big part of our chat today, uh, you know, for me personally, um, you know, the London 2012 Olympics was really the first time that I took notice of the women's Canadian national team. Uh, there was really no bigger story during that Olympics than, than that team. You know, and while the, while the Canadian women's team was already one of the top teams in the world, you know, I, I don't believe, and I'll really just speak for myself, I mean, I don't believe that most Canadians uh, were, were aware of the, of the dominance of you know, Christine St. Clair at that point, especially on a stage like that. You know, for real fans, obviously, it was no, it was no surprise. And um, you know, going all the way back to you know, almost 20 years ago in 2003 at the Women's World Cup, you know, Canada was so close to actually reaching the final, which is just an incredible accomplishment. So taking yourself back to that time, 2003 or around there, when you were in, uh, in the thick of your career, could you have imagined how they actually seem to be a, a catalyst for change in the sport of soccer in Canada, as well as women's sport overall in this country? My comments will have nothing to do with their success uh, because their success, success has been tremendous. And certainly not only for women's sport, but for team sport in this country, um, it's been game changing, you know, so they put team sport back on the map for 
for this country um, in 2012, you know, and I was there. Uh, so I had, I was very fortunate at the time working with Taekwondo Canada. So I was in London um, and managed to get myself tickets for soccer. And in particular, the semifinal against the US and, and the final and the bronze medal match back in uh, London. You know, it was incredibly inspiring. It was incredibly emotional. Um, you know, just you could feel everything that they were fighting for, right? Um, um, which is something that, you know, for most people in sport, and I will say it's not just women, it's people of color, you know, that are truly fighting for their place in sport and, and their place where they're represented at all levels in the sport, uh, where they can see themselves in it. So my, when I say my comment will not reflect their success, in terms of how far it has come, it hasn't come that far. And all you need to do is take a really close look at um, leadership, governance, people in positions of power in this sport uh, in the country. And of course, I have many friends coast to coast who are in positions of power, who are not in positions of power, but working towards change. I, I mean, I, I, I've been working with Ontario Soccer on their board. Uh, I'm now... Uh, spearheading with David Miller, a diversity and inclusion committee in Ontario soccer for the very reason that I would say that the sport today looks less and less like the, the participants than it ever has, or it feels that way. Now what, and I could only speculate a little bit and you're going to have to help me validate uh, from the things you're, you're able to talk about. Is it, is, is it because of the success that they've had and the way that um, the corporate corporate Canada has followed that team? And, uh, and there was, obviously there's the Women's World Cup in 2015 that's part of this. That was a pretty big, big event. Um, you know, I, is it was it just trendy to jump on that bandwagon and 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 the, the usual people come out of the woodwork to take credit for it and 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 the power brokers or just wanted a piece of no, it? No, it's that, you know, success on the field, uh, any athlete will know this. It's a moment in time. You you look to repeat it and sustain it and keep going. Um, but the expectation is you, you achieve that or you keep achieving that same standard of success and those same results with the same resources you were given a decade ago. I mean, there's not many right. things in business if you just take business. What businesses continue to thrive 10 years on with the same level of investment, the same resources, the same passion, the same commitment that they had 10 years prior? <laughs> it doesn't happen. And, you know, so in, in the years I've been involved with sport where real change happens, it's in, in the power structures, it's in the leadership structures, the governance structures, it's the people that have the ability to make a difference, to you know, change the composition of leadership of sport in the country. That's where change happens because that's how it sustains over decades. Um, and that's where, in my opinion, we've not made the strides that we need to make, particularly in this sport. I mean, if you just look at the participation base and you look at the composition of that and the demographics of that, and then you compare that to, you know, where the influence lies, where the power lies, wherever, there is a big mismatch. And yeah, when you look at the... The track record of not not just the men's national team during most of that time how, how much did you know from your perspective like the resources that continue to get get poured into the men's game while the women's team was really the one funding that 
listen, I don't have the inside scoop on these things. Uh, you know, I, I'm not looking directly, but I, I can tell you, uh, let me go back to my rugby days. And, and I think one of the biggest places where I did have an impact was said, saying, you know, in front of the AGM, which is, of course, all the provincial organizations and the leadership of the sport across the country and everything else. I mean, it was my turn as the manager of rugby development to stand up, sort of give a report. And I took the opportunity to champion the fact that the women's rugby program in Canada was ranked fourth in the world at that time. The men's program, I can't tell you, but certainly double digits, maybe 20, you know, 20th or, or later. And so I had sort of implored the room to really look at that and to seriously consider investing in the women's game because moving the women's game from fourth ranked in the world to number one is was a much easier path and much more realistic and achievable than moving the men's program into top 10. And so my point of view was if you get the women's program to number one, that brings status world recognition for the sport of rugby in Canada, regardless, men, women, it just put Canadian rugby on the map, which it did. And I was able to say it maybe as a woman, but I literally stood up and said, I'm not saying this because I'm a woman. I'm saying this because this is the right business decision to take. This is the right decision for the sport of rugby because funding comes after that. Sponsors come after that, you know, all kinds of things that you can then resource all your programs to a much greater degree. And build the sport ultimately. And build the sport. So let's be strategic about where we can get those wins and really put the sport on the map. And so now we look, you know, on the on the side of soccer. Yes, we need to improve the men's side, and we're doing that. But we also need to continue to improve the women's side, and we can't expect them to continue to improve and achieve the same success while, you know, stagnating the investment or parking it or, you know, redistributing over to the men's side to try to prop that up. I mean, you have a product here and, and you have a, a women's program that is still ranked you know, top 10 in the world that can continue to climb that ladder, but it needs, it needs an investment resource strategy. Um, it needs the same consideration that the men's game is getting profile, the professional game, you know, a place for players to go uh, past their, their amateur or their teenage playing days where they have something to aspire to in this country. Yeah. Well, we hope, we hope that that, that happens and we hope to see a, some sort of a, of a women's league professional women's league here in Canada. I don't, I'm not sure when, and um, maybe we won't speak too much about that right now, but we do, we do certainly hope all of that happens in in short order beyond the, um, you know, but beyond the league one Ontario competition, which is already a, a great piece that hopefully uh, women across the country are celebrating already. So on the pitch from the bench or from the boardroom, you know, you've proven, you've talked to us a lot about it already today, you know, what it takes to be a leader in sport. How much of the accountability in any of those roles have you placed on yourself to support and nurture uh, developing leaders? Uh, huge. I think it's the most important thing, most important responsibility that any leader has. Um, you know, you've got people coming in your door, you know, young up and coming leaders, you know, people that, that aspire to the top or aspire to evolve and, and to yeah, to lead and to influence and, and to contribute to other people along the way and down the road. So they come in your door, you hire them. Um, for me, it is absolutely critical that any person you bring into your organization, that you give them the best possible chance to succeed and grow as a person, grow as a professional and grow as a person. I mean, 
you know, you, it's not just, in my opinion, it is not just anymore about bring people in to get a task done, use them, you know, tire them out, wear them out, wear them down. Uh, and then, by the way, remind them that, you know, there's a hundred other people that would love to work here and would love to have your job. So don't even think for a second um, that you shouldn't be grateful for the opportunity. That thinking uh, does not align with my thinking whatsoever. I do not believe that that's what leadership is about. I don't even believe that that's what business is about. Um, you know, I've seen uh, in the different environments I've been in, you know, the best case scenario, the worst case scenario of what you, your stance on these things, what it does for uh, people being effective, employees being um, thriving versus being completely burnt out, motivated versus being completely apathetic. Um, it affects every aspect of the business. Uh, it affects, you know, their mental health, their well-being as people. And then you're now into managing all kinds of other issues. So um, I have, since since the time I've been a captain, have been, uh, have recognized the importance of that role and the importance of leading others and having an impact on others on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I take that very seriously. And I believe that every single person has the same chance to succeed, the same chance to realize their full potential. And it, you realize your full potential through relationships with other people and for through those people that end up, you end up meeting along the way that mentor you, invest in you, grow and develop you. So this is something that is incredibly important to me. So Eva and I have chatted a bit aside from our, uh, our chat today. And, uh, and I know she is making a concerted effort to not just be a supportive executive of uh, developing talent, uh, not just women, but men as well. But you're also, you're also doing a little something on your own to, uh, to really walk the walk. Why don't you share what that's about? Yeah. Um, listen, I've, I've wanted to, I've been thinking about doing this for the last four years, five years. Um, I started my, let, let's say my leadership or executive career in the sport industry in Canada early. I was 29 when I got my first CEO job. Um, you know, I spent four years at Taekwondo. I took a weekend and then moved to equestrian, you know, ended Taekwondo on a Friday, went to equestrian on a Monday. So I learned a lot out of doing that. I will never do that again. Um, but, you know, I was, I spent my, my, you know, my last years of my twenties and a good part of my thirties at the CEO level in sport as a woman in this country. And, you know, I ran like because of some of the organizations I was with. And of course, because of some of those factors I just mentioned, like there were some really tough moments. And, you know, I had some amazing allies and people around me and I had some not so amazing people around me, people that literally were had made a commitment to see that I would never work in sport again because of some of the changes that were needing needed in those organizations. Wow. That's uh, just awful. Yeah. Those were hard moments, you know, because at the end of the day, I mean, sport has been part of my life since I was a kid, you know, it will never not be part of my life. And it's, it's also, I've learned it's, it's like my form of artistry. It's my expression of, I, I'm not, I can't draw. I'm not that kind of artist, but I'm absolutely an artist when it comes to sport. And so, you know, it was the last four years where I really started to say, like, I'm looking around trying to figure out, you know, who do I talk to about my development and, and like really talk to about it, really talk to about some of these moments. You can't always go to your partner. You can't always go to your family. 
you know, they just care about your well-being. They see that you're working 80 hours a week, that you're giving everything you have, that, you know, some of that is not really cared for. You know, the, the gratitude for that effort is sometimes not there. And so I looked around saying, where do I go? And then what happened as a result of being younger in the industry is I, I was someone who was relatable for up and coming leaders in sport that look and say, you know, if, if I was up speaking at the Olympic committee sessions and I was on a panel and like, you've got younger people in the room or, or younger up and coming leaders just around saying, holy crap, like if she can do it, I can do it. And so that, that was a pattern that just kept repeating itself. So when that was hiring uh, individuals coming in, so new graduates, you know, people that were three to five years into their, into their career, um, hiring them on my team, a lot of coaching, a lot of mentoring on the way, a lot of sharing of my own experiences and, and helping them to really understand who they are and where they were going. It just, it was happening all the time. It still happens to this day. So I had, um, really decided uh, this year because I had a little bit of time to really think through what's next and how do I how do I formalize this uh, was to launch a business doing this very thing and the business is around its leadership development but it's leadership mindset and it's the thing that I've learned the most uh, that has the greatest impact not only on you professionally but personally um, it's this whole concept of leadership mindset and there's some research out there it's new and it's emerging but what is not there is how do you design and redesign yourself as a leader as you move through your career? It's something that it can be coached. It can be learned. Um, there's, you know, something to be aware of there that, wait a minute, you know, I can have a really, really hard experience and I, I can reinvent myself. How do you do that? How do you recognize the red flags along your career when they come up and navigate those effectively so that they don't destroy you? Because unfortunately, there you will come up against people who, if you're if you're great at what you do, you're passionate, you're having success. There are people that don't want to see you have success, and so how do you navigate that? And this is where I want to give back. I want to give back, and I want to literally help the development of up and coming leaders, emerging leaders, leaders that are you know let's say they're in a, an executive role, an executive director role, but they're dealing with an organizational crisis. Well, I dealt with organizational crisis crises for 10 years over and over and successfully. So uh, there needs to be a place for people to go. And, and I'm super excited to be positioning myself as someone who can actually give back in that way and help others achieve their greatness. That's fantastic. That's great of you to kind of seize, seize the moment to say, wait a second, I have enough knowledge that I've accumulated. A, a lot of it, there's some scars as you've kind of talked around, but Absolutely. but it's okay. I mean, it's going to happen, but at least, you know, what you're doing will prepare people for those situations or will help, help coach them through it as they're experiencing it. That's fantastic. I absolutely will be following your progress with that initiative. As we think about opportunities for women in, in general, let's say they're all good opportunities with the right support. You know, what, what have you seen as opportunities emerging for women in sport um, that maybe, you know, I, I wouldn't just have purview to? Sorry, Mark, I'm not. Got to be honest, yeah. Um, uh, our our seat at the table, they're not growing. Uh, there's lots of data that supports this. You don't need to take my word for it. Um, you know, we are we are a minority around that table, and if the table has a certain, you know, certain personality to it, let's say, it's a, it's a tough place to fit in. So no, I don't I don't see opportunities emerging for women in sport. Let's spend a little time then then 
breaking it down. Um, mm -hmm. So this is, these are opportunities that this is for women being in leadership positions or coaching positions or uh, any kind of position, even, even around a woman's sport, we're not even talking about uh, in, in, let's say the big, the big, the major sports, which, uh, you know, we, we have seen women, I, I think the Raptors have done a pretty good job highlighting uh, the women who are part of their coaching staff. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, Raptors aside, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen much on the, on the men's side in Canada yet anyway, but even on the women's side, you're saying the op you haven't seen that progress either. No, not really. No. And, and as I said, I mean, just look at the data, the data will, will speak volumes, you know, and it, when we're talking about progress, are we talking about one or two new opportunities out of hundreds? Is that progress? I don't think it is. For me, it's it's a new table. A new table needs to emerge. Well, we'll we'll make sure that we check in with you <laughs> once your uh, once your leadership uh, series and coaching business has a couple years under its belt, and uh, and if we're still doing this, and if we're not, you and I will be friends, and I'll still check in on you to to see if that <laughs> if your opinion to that question has changed. So yeah, you bet. So on the backstage project podcast, we have a few questions that we just ask every guest uh, as a reminder to our audience mm -hmm. Eva doesn't know what these questions are she's not prepared for them we have you know some hints at what she might say but we'll still uh, ask her the questions anyways so if you had to pick uh, one moment in your career that was the most memorable to you, um, you know, which one would that be you know it's uh, one of the recent ones so being in PEI with uh, CPL and running the island games the most memorable experience for me was um it was right in the midst of when all of the sport leagues and all the athletes started boycotting mostly south of the border right saying we're not playing we're boy boycotting given what was happening uh in society um and so we called a meeting both with the coaching staff uh of the teams the eight teams and then the next day with the players it was supposed to be the player reps the 60 players showed up so obviously this was something that was on their mind and something that they uh, they were ready to speak about. Um, and what came out of that, so what I, what I had the opportunity being there, being present and working with them to understand exactly how they wanted to express themselves and use their platform, what came out of that for me was um, a, a recognition of how incredible the athletes are in the CPL. Um, you know, rec they, they recognize exactly where they're at in their professional career and the influence they can have or can't have yet. Um, but they wanted to make sure that they did something with their platform and they did it together. So all eight teams, you know, um, all players from every single team. And so literally got a flip chart, grabbed a marker and said, okay, guys, what do you want to do? What does this look like? You know, tell us, what does it look like? And so started to jot that down. And literally uh, the expression of that was the, the match where they showed up. Um, it was all eight teams. So we had organized that. We got them all to, uh, to PEI. They walked out, uh, as you saw, they walked out interlocked. So it wasn't, you know, just Pacific walking out and then York walking out. And they were all intermixed all together in rows, um, linked arms around the perimeter of the, the field for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Uh, the whistle blew, everyone kneeled um, for a minute of silence, and then the game started again. But the impact of that for the players in terms of them being able to express themselves have, as how they wanted to and being able to be part of that and make that happen for them 
something that, you know, I'll never forget. And this is another example of these emerging leaders that have something to say and something to contribute that can open all of our eyes, even some of the most experienced leaders in sport or any in industry, they can open our eyes. You know, they are very attuned to social justice, to what's happening in the world, um, and they want to use their voice and they want to use their platform. And really, as all we need to do is just help them make that happen. Wow, what a what a powerful moment! And congratulations to the whole the whole leadership team at the CPL for allowing that to happen. You know, at that time in Canada, it was the CPL that were playing games in a bubble and PI, and then it was the NHL in Edmonton and Toronto. And um, we won't get into it now because I'm not prepared with all the facts, and neither are you. But uh, from the press that I do remember, I mean, the NHL players were were not very quick to understand the significance of what was going on. Um, they weren't in the NBA bubble. MLS had their own little bubble down there in Orlando as well. Uh, but for that to happen in Canada and for that to be with the CPL, um, what, what a fantastic moment. And uh, congrats again for being part of that as an executive for allowing that to happen. Absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about careers and leadership, uh, which is a huge part of what you're all about. Um now, if you had to speak directly to people who are looking to get into you know, women leadership positions in sport, what what would you what would you say to them? I would say uh, it's incredibly important to know exactly who you are, know exactly what your values are, um, have a really good sense of what you want your impact to be and your legacy to be, and start to carve out you know, that path for yourself, you know, try to get as clear as possible as what that path looks like. So what do the roles look like? And then within those roles, what impact are you able to have that allows you to express yourself and feel like you are achieving your, your potential? Because ultimately for my belief, like your career, it's for your potential. Yes. You're leaving a legacy and you're impacting and you're in service of others, but you need to be fulfilled and you need to, you know, it needs to be rewarding for you. And so I think the sooner as, you know, up and coming women who want to work in sport and, and want to work in leadership, the sooner you can get super clear about that and pursue that relentlessly, the more joy you're going to have in your career. That's great advice. And, and when you run into trouble, Eva will be there for you right. to talk to. She's already told us that. That's right. So Eva and I had offices kind of beside each other. With, with no, There were no ceilings on those offices. <laughs> so there might have been a wall and a door, but it was only there uh, for uh, aesthetics. And so I've learned an, an immense amount about you today that I didn't know. Uh, it seemed like most of our chats uh, when we were side by side there were more about how we can you know, make improve the product and, and make you know, make our world a better place, which right. is fantastic. Yeah. So if we have a couple things uh, to learn from you still, we're going we're gonna to extract it out of you <laughs> in, the, in the time we have. So when, when you look back at the beginning of your career, you know, is, is there anything that, that right, right now is just part of your way of thinking, part of your mindset that, that back then you just, you just couldn't grasp or, or you struggled with? Um, that's a really good question, Mark. Um, yeah, I grasp now uh, the skill of being adaptable the skill of adjusting your mindset based on whatever the situation presents. It's something you can learn over time, but it's, it's a very valuable skill to have. Um, and so it's about being prepared to 
yeah, be, be adaptable, be like a chameleon, you know, but never, never lose sight of your authenticity and your values. You don't have to lose sight of that in order to show up differently based on what the situation requires of you. This is something I learned, you know, in the later years of my career so far that I, you know, I mean, imagine me coming out of school, grad school, having done the things I've done and I, I get this job developing a sport I've never played, but certainly it's team sport. And yeah, was I stubborn about it? hundred <laughs> percent, you know, but it helped me to move forward in my career. Um, and at the same time, yeah, you learn, you become more sophisticated down the road and you realize how you can maneuver different situations and be strategic about them. Thanks for sharing that. Another Another thing that I'll add into the mix here, it, it seems like you, you, you really don't settle. Um, you, you strive for better, whether that's what you're committing yourself to or for yourself. Uh, it was great. It was great doing this with you today. Uh, I learned a ton. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed the experience as well. I did, Mark. Always good to talk to you. You know that. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.